It's often joked that uh, Mother's Day sermon is a tender, you're amazing kind of sermon, and Father's Day is usually a, if you don't get your act together kind of sermon, Um, but that's not going to be the case today. We are going to look to and focus on the Son this Father's Day on Jesus. We're continuing our study of ancient creeds, and specifically the Nicene Creed this morning. The section we're going to be focusing on continues to highlight the Son, Jesus, and if you are in children's ministry, you should be there. (laughs) Someone should tell you that. Thank you, Ryan. We saw last week how the Son is eternal, how He is God, fully God, part of the Trinity from eternity past. I want to say something briefly here. The point of the creeds is to give us right belief. I've tried to highlight that throughout these weeks that we've been looking at them. The point isn't to tell us how we should live. And so for those who are wondering, where's the application? That's not what the creeds are meant to do. We need right understanding of who God is to know how to practice rightly. It's like Paul writing the book of Ephesians, that letter to the Ephesians, the first half of it, the first three chapters, is all identity. It's just fact. It's truth about who we are. He's saying this is who you are in Christ forever and ever because of what Christ did, what He accomplished. This is who you are. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he's saying, now act like that. You are that. Now respond to that truth. Act like it. Start becoming and practice what you already are in position. So we're mainly going to be looking at God and at doctrines concerning God with some application sprinkled in. I also want to let you know that... um, There are some links, I I meant to announce this the first week of this series, and I apologize, Um, but there are some links on the website to help during this series. Some of you uh, may just like want to dive deep into this um, information and this stuff. There's books, links to books on there that if you want to dive in and and read some books, I highly recommend that. There are uh, some of you who just may want a brief article to kind of help you understand the good of creeds and why we're studying them. There's some links to articles that are, that are brief um, there as well. But let's, let's move on. Let's look at the text today, um, which is the same as last week. So go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 1. We'll be covering mainly the last part, what we didn't look at last week. But let's read the, the, uh, the whole text, verses 15 through 23 of Colossians 1. Go ahead and stand as you get there. Colossians 1, beginning with verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your Word. Again, we we want to say it is a gift to us a gift that we often take for granted, that we often neglect. We confess here again, it is a gift. We're thankful for You revealing Yourself to us through Your Word. So help us in this time, Lord, to embrace it, to believe. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, the section from the Nicene Creed that we're covering today is this, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven. And sits at the right hand of the Father, and He shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. Now, there are several wonderful truths in this. We could could focus on just this section of this particular creed for the rest of the year. But this is a summer series, so we're kind of taking some chunks here. Remember, this comes after the creed affirming the deity of the Son, that that the Son is fully God. So let's consider this, and it's glorious, it is the gospel. There are glorious truths, doctrines highlighted here. The first thing that we see is the virgin birth of Jesus, the Son, incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, it says. Now, let me say before we get into what the virgin birth is, it is absolutely distinct from the Roman Catholic doctrine of immaculate conception, which teaches that not only was Jesus sinless, but that the virgin Mary was sinless at conception as well. There's nothing in Scripture that would indicate that. In fact, Mary herself in Luke chapter 1, as she is singing the song of worship and praise in response to knowing that she is giving birth to the Messiah, she herself sings in God, my Savior. And she sings that because she needs a Savior just like we need a Savior. Rather, it is the Son of God who comes miraculously to this earth through the womb of fallen humanity. Imagine that. God 
became flesh through the womb of fallen humanity. Do we as the church today see the literal, historical, virgin birth the way the writers of the creeds did? And does it matter to us whether or not it's true? I would contend that it definitely matters. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, we're told that Mary, though she was betrothed, pledged to Joseph, was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And in Luke's Gospel, he writes in chapter 1, verses 34 and 35, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, there is certainly a mystery to this, that a woman becomes pregnant by the power of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit is impossible apart from the fact that nothing is impossible with God. But it's necessary also. The virgin birth means that Jesus was not simply a holy man, a man who somehow lived a perfect life. He's not simply a holy man that God honored with divine status. God incarnate. God put on flesh and dwelt among us. It is remarkable. It's amazing. The Son really had to come down through the incarnation. Otherwise, we would again be left the impossible task of rising up to God on our own, which we could never do. The authors of the Nicene Creed affirm that Christ was fundamentally unlike us and like God. He's the one through whom all things came to be. That's what Paul is saying in Colossians 1. All things were created through Him, all things were created for Him. He's the one through whom all things came to be, not one of the things that came to be. And this Son, who was fundamentally like His Father and unlike us, became like us when He came down and became incarnate. So unlike Arian, who taught that salvation was this upward action where first the Son and then His followers had to rise up to God, the Gospel says salvation involved and even required the downward action of the Son, the eternal Son, who is truly God, coming to earth to live as truly human. He was made Man, it says. The Son, Jesus, has always been. He has always existed. From eternity past, always 
been, but He has not always been man. Philippians 2, 5 through 7, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We, as humanity, needed a mediator. We needed someone who could and would intercede for us. We needed one who was truly God and truly man. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God, And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. And how? How did He, the Son, mediate for us? He became man, it says, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures. Now, we just spent two and a half years in the Gospel of Matthew, and we spent several weeks going through His suffering, death, and resurrection. So, I'm not going to spend a long time on this, but I do want to say some things. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18 says this, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself, this is the Son, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation For the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Christ, the Son, as fully God and fully man, mediates for us, first and foremost, by taking on death and becoming a propitiation or the propitiation for our sins. He became the propitiation or satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins. You consider the wrath of God against sin. And what hope do we have? The answer to that is only Jesus. When the Bible says He's the propitiation for our sins, it means that wrath in Christ is satisfied. Satisfied is a really, really good word. When we're talking about God's wrath, satisfied is a good word. Propitiation is saying Jesus did that. He satisfied God's wrath for your sins if you are in Christ. Philippians 2, 5-8, through 8, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point 
of death, even death on a cross, and that death satisfies God's wrath for our sin. What does his death do? Everything. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, where we're at. And through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. To reconcile to himself all things. Now, this isn't just individual salvation. Reconciliation of all things to himself. All creation that was broken will be made right. He makes peace by the blood of his cross. Look at the next verses, Colossians 20, uh, 1, 21 and 22. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now this is about you. You were and are broken. And apart from, away from God. The Son, Jesus, really had to come down through the incarnation. He really had to take on flesh. He really had to live a life unlike you and unlike Adam, perfect and holy. And he really had to die had to be punished for our sins. And he had to rise to demonstrate God's acceptance of his sacrifice and the hope we have in him for our future. He had to come down and do those things. Otherwise, we are left with the impossible task of rising up to God on our own. Jesus Paul writes, has now reconciled us. He's resolved the problem. He has united us to the Father. What hindered that before is resolved in Christ. Jesus came down to us to bring us to Him. Listen, fathers, here is my encouragement to you today. Look to Jesus. Seriously, look. I just mentioned a moment ago, we spent two and a half years going through the Gospel of Matthew. What did you see? What kind of man did you see as we went through the Gospel? As you read the Gospels, What do you see in the man Jesus? Look at him. One who came down to us, full of compassion, full of mercy, full of love, full of gentleness, full of peace, full of tenderness, full of kindness, welcoming the broken and welcoming 
you in all of your brokenness, welcoming me in all of my brokenness. Look at Him, God in the flesh. Be humble. Look to Jesus. This Jesus came down to us, was made man. And He demonstrated to us what manliness looks like. That's what Paul means in Philippians 2, isn't it? That's what he means. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's what he means. This is what Jesus looks like. You, look at him. What's he really like? Count others more significant than yourself. Be a servant. Forsake selfish ambition and conceit. Look to the interest of others. That's what Paul says. I'm not all at all saying these things to chastise you. I'm actually doing the opposite. I want to commend you these things. I'm simply saying that I think some men are trying to play a role. of manliness that has been described to them. And I'm just saying to you, if you're falling apart inside, look to Jesus. Don't try to be a father that doesn't look like Jesus. The way He treated others, the way He treats you. There's so many descriptions of manhood, of manliness, that don't look at all like Jesus and His peace and His kindness and His compassion. And if you've, if you've been taught those things in a way that you feel like, I can't, I'm trying to look like this, I can't, look to Jesus. Just be humble and look to Jesus. He was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. And then it goes on and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. Again, just this section could keep us for a long, long time, but it's not going to. We have more to do. The Son ascended to the right hand of the Father. I mentioned this as part of the Sermon on the Ascension a month ago, but the Ascension is so significant because Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father means that His work of mediating for you and for me is still going on. It wasn't a one-time deal on the cross that Jesus mediates for us and then Man, you got to make some serious pleas to the Father on your own behalf because Jesus did His deal. No, He's there now mediating for you and for me forever. Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding 
for us, who's mediating for us. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Amazing. Amazing. You are not without hope. You are not hopeless. The perfect, Son of God is sitting at the right hand of the Father pleading for you. Also, His intercession assures us that He's coming back. The creed, the Nicene Creed says, and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and He shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead. He's coming again. Verse 20 in in Colossians chapter 1. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He will reconcile to himself all things. This is not the end of the story. There is coming a kingdom that is forever and perfect. He's coming back and he will establish his eternal kingdom kingdom. He's going to judge. He is going to judge those that are still alive when he comes and those who have already died. And his judgments are righteous and good. And those who are in him, those who have trusted in him will be a part of his kingdom. A kingdom that has no end. Those who do not trust in him will be forever cast away. Let's look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. If indeed you continue in the faith. What faith? Right belief. If you continue in right belief, That's exactly what the writers of the creeds sought to assist with. To continue in what is right belief, what is true. Paul goes on, the hope of the gospel that you heard. If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now listen, I mentioned this weeks ago, but it doesn't say that you read from the hope of the gospel that you read, but the hope of the gospel that you heard. Remember, that's why the creeds were so important. There were hundreds of years without a written word in the hands of the people. And even if they had been available, which they weren't, generous estimates put the literacy of the masses at around 10% at that time. That means around 10% of the people could read. So even if they had been handed a New Testament, when they came to faith, they couldn't read it. So what did they do? How did they know about the gospel, about right belief? It's what Paul says right here. 
the hope of the gospel that you heard proclaimed to you. That someone told you people relying on faithful bishops or elders. And just so you know, those are the same thing. When you hear bishop in being referred to in this time period where the creeds are written, the early church, don't think that that's a bad thing, okay? It's the New Testament word for elder and bishop and overseer. It's all the same. People relied on faithful elders, bishops, to teach them right doctrine. And Paul says, don't shift, don't move, don't budge from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Don't do it. It's one of the primary reasons we're going through this this summer, that it would bolster in us and solidify in us the hope of truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To close and to enter into the time where we take the Lord's Supper, I want us to consider this question. Why did the Son do this? Why did He come? Why was He birthed? Why was He made man? Why did He put on flesh? Why did he walk in this sin-filled, broken world? Why did he put himself to people who would accuse him falsely? Why did he suffer? Why did he die? Why did he do these things? The Nicene Creed gives this answer. For us, and our salvation. There's nothing better that we could think on as we go into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together. That He did it for us and for our salvation. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The bread of communion represents His body broken for you and for me. The cup represents His blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. If you know Him, if you have a relationship with Him, and come and receive the elements. Take them back to your seats where we will partake together. Remembering He did this for us and for our salvation. If you don't know Him, again, I want to encourage you. This is the one part of our service where we encourage you, don't, don't participate in the same way you see everyone else. And here's why. Paul tells us, in 1 Corinthians 11, as often as you do this, you proclaim, you announce the Lord's death until He comes. So in a sense, it's a way that we together rejoice in proclamation that we believe Jesus died and was raised and ascended and is coming back again to rescue us and take us with Him. So at base level, we would encourage you, you probably don't even want to say that yet. You probably don't want to stand up and shout that from the rooftops like people around you 
do. But here's what I would encourage you. If you don't yet know him, then think, contemplate. These are historical truths. A man, Jesus, really did live. He really did teach people. He really did have a following of people. He really did make religious leaders ticked off. They really did arrest him. They really did kill him. And in his teaching prior to his death, he said, I'm going to rise again. And on the third day, the stone was moved and his body was gone. Now you have to do with that something. It's up to you to do with that something. I believe, we believe the scriptures are true, that he lives, that he didn't lie, that he was raised from the dead because he was God in the flesh, and that his death was on purpose, that it meant something. It was a sacrifice to be punished for your sins and for my sins. And that the scriptures continue and say, whoever believes in him will have eternal life, will be forgiven, will be saved. And so my encouragement to you, if you don't know him, and I'm saying that even if you've attended here for a decade or more, and you've just gotten used to going through the motions of getting up and doing what everyone else, if you don't know him, then think on the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And instead of just taking the elements that make you feel like you're doing the right thing, do the right thing and surrender to Jesus. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. You're so good to us. You're so merciful and kind, generous. You're compassionate. You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And your goodness went so far as for you to leave heaven and to come through a birth canal, to literally put on flesh, and to live among us as an infant, as a toddler, as a teen, as a young adult, as a grown man. You put on flesh and you lived the life that we could never live. And then you died the death that we could never die, being punished by God and satisfying His wrath for our sins. Praise you and we thank you we believe that that is not the end of the story. We believe you rose again. We believe you're coming again. And we pray that you'd help us as we go into this time now where we take the bread and we take the cup, even as we hold it and wait for the, the moment where we partake together, Lord. Help us to remember rightly. You did this for us and for our salvation. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.